Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. This message series was originally written uh, by Life Church, and they've shared this, the resources with us, and of course we're modifying it for our own use, but uh, it's a great concept. Things Jesus didn't say. Things Jesus never said. You may think to yourself, why would, we, why would we want to talk about the things he didn't say? And the answer to that question is that there are many things that we believe Jesus said, or we inherently just think that, of course, the Bible says that, or Jesus said that, and we just sort of embrace them as true, and sometimes it's helpful to find out what he actually didn't say. And so we're covering some of those, and of course, through the course of talking about what he didn't say, we're also talking about what he did. Uh, Here's a couple fun ones just to get us started. You guys ready for this? So responsive and fun. Uh, You guys are great. Uh, Okay. Uh, Here's something Jesus never said. You're too far gone. Like he never, he never looked at anyone. And was like, well, you know, I can I can fix hurting broken people, but not you. I mean, you're 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 too far. You know, I can forgive sins, just not those, not yours. Jesus never said anything of the kind. And of course, nobody actually thinks he said that. But sometimes, what we tell ourselves is, I'm too far gone. Right? That that's that's where the lie kind of sneaks in. So Jesus never said that. Here's another thing Jesus never said. WWJD. <laughs> Some of you remember, some of you remember that from like the 90s. Uh, it was this little, the acronym for those that don't know is, what would Jesus do? And, um, and they have these little bracelets, a WWJD, and when you weren't sure what to do, you'd look at the bracelet and you'd remember what you should do. At least that was the idea when I was a teenager. And uh, it wasn't like Jesus one day was, you know, his disciples were saying, Jesus, teach us how to live. So you know what we're going to do, boys? I want you to get a bracelet and I want you to inscribe the letters WWID. And just ask yourself, what would I do? You know, he, Jesus never said that. Because, um, of course, the problem with that, and I'm, I'm picking on, on somebody in the back, like covering their bracelet. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm picking a little bit because, um, you know, the problem with what would Jesus do is it, it assumes or presumes that we know exactly what Jesus would do. And, of course, Jesus often did the thing that nobody expected him to do, so it's, that's pretty hard to know. Uh, and, of course, Jesus wandered around Israel, you know, in the first century. He slept on a rock. He had no house, no wife. He healed people. He fed the 5,000. He had a group of men following him around. So it's like, oh, is that what we're supposed to do? I'm not, I'm not sure. And then how does that help, like, a 17-year-old teenage boy who's trying to decide whether he's going to go to the field party, you know? And his friends are like, it's going to be so amazing, you won't even remember it. And then his parents are going like, absolutely not, over our dead body, you're not going. And he looks at his wrist and goes, what would Jesus do? And he thinks to himself, well, Jesus hung out with publicans and sinners, and he made wine, so, you know, I think I'm going to go to the party and evangelize my friends, you know. So, so maybe, maybe instead we should be saying, you know, W-D-J-S, what did Jesus say? What did he say? What did he teach? Maybe that's a, maybe that's a better, and again, I'm, I'm picking, I'm just having a little fun. Come on, guys. Um, so here's, here's the phrase um, that I want to talk about today, and I'll show it to you with a, with a blank and just see if you can fill in the blank for us, okay? Here, here's the phrase, do what makes you, okay, so you guys, you guys know this, and I don't know that anybody claims that Jesus actually said this, but there's this logic that follows. It's like, okay, if God loves me and he wants me happy, surely he wants me happy, then 
I guess I'm supposed to do what makes me happy. And so this logical train of thought just flows through, and it's really permeated our culture today. I think you'd agree. And I think what we'll discover today about this particular phrase is that it's actually much more cultural than biblical. That, that there's this notion in our culture that, you know, um, that we're just to do what makes us happy. That that's a great guidepost and compass for our lives. Uh, so I want to talk about this phrase. And I want to show you what Jesus didn't say and what he actually said. But in order to do so, we're going to read a story. And this story is found in John chapter 8. John was one of Jesus' disciples who was there. when This moment we're going to read about, he was there. And he saw it happen. And he later wrote it down for us to read and learn from it. Here's what he says in John 8 verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. For those that are unfamiliar with the temple, it's a large stone building in the center of Jerusalem. And it had a massive portico, a big area where thousands of people could congregate. And Jesus goes to the temple, the center of religion, the center of culture for the Jews. And he's there at the temple. And it says this, all the people came to him. And we don't know. Hundreds for sure, thousands perhaps. But you can imagine large crowds, as Jesus often drew, were coming to hear Jesus. And he sat down and taught them. In those days, it was cultural for the teacher to sit. I'm standing, so you can see me. But he would sit, and everyone would sit, and he would teach. Here's what happens next. Nobody expects this. The scribes and Pharisees, these are religious holy men who are leaders in the religious community. Uh, They come and they bring a woman. So you can imagine, hey, excuse me, make way. And they're bringing this woman, dragging her, in fact, to Jesus. And it says they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, we don't use the word adultery much in our common language, so let me just tell you what it means. It means, in this case, that she was cheating on her husband. So she's a married woman, and they found her with another man. Not good. Particularly because in this culture, that, that was punishable by law. And so they, they, they have this woman caught in adultery, and they drag her through the crowd and place her in the midst in front of Jesus, and they say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So they're not saying we heard about, they're not saying we got a tip that this woman was, was, was messing around on her husband. They're like, we caught her with the man, and we brought her here to you for justice, Okay. Notice what they say next, verse 5. Now, in the law, and they're referring to the law of God given to Moses in the Old Covenant. The law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Talk about putting somebody on the spot in front of a crowd. And I'm one of those annoying people that has to fact check everything. If you're sitting in my living room and you're like, oh, so-and-so did this. I'm like, let me just check that. And we'll Google it and be like, actually, you're wrong. And my friends and family love me for that. Um, but when I read this, like, they're like, hey, the law says stone such a woman. I'm like, okay, where does it say that? What exactly does it say? And thankfully, I did the research for you, and I'm going to show you what the law of Moses actually says. Here it is in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. It says this, if a man is found lying with the wife of another, this is not a good seed, both of them shall what? Die. Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman you so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So like if you got a man and a woman who are both breaking their, their marital vows and doing something they shouldn't, they're both gonna be killed. Everyone's like, okay, not sure I like that, but okay, seems relatively fair as far as fair goes. So my first question when they're like, hey, the law says we're to stone such women, my first question, and maybe yours should be, Yeah, where's the guy? Is this is this really about keeping the law? Are they, are they really pursuing justice? 
But Jesus, we just want to keep the law that God gave us. We want our nation of Israel to live up to its name, the Holy Land. No. Not, not a chance. They had an agenda, a serious agenda. And it tells us that in the next verse. John obviously knew this, as Jesus did. He says this. They said this to test him. This was all a big test. That they might have some charge to bring against him. See, they're trying to get Jesus backed into a corner in a no-win situation. Because here's the deal. The crowds love Jesus because he's merciful and kind. He's forgiving sins. He's healing the broken. And he's feeding the, the hungry. And they're just like, Jesus is amazing. And, and, and the religious leaders are angry because he, they're losing their power. And their plan is, hey, let's put this woman who is caught in the act in front of Jesus. And if he says, stone her, the crowds would be like, I guess he wasn't what we thought. And they would leave him. Or if he said, no, we're going to forgive her, we're not going to punish her, we're not going to keep the law, they could, they could call him a heretic who doesn't keep the law. So they've really got him in the perfect no-win situation, and they're claiming to honor God. They're like, but the Bible says, Jesus. And I know not all of you in this room grew up in church, but I grew up in church, and there are good churches and there are bad churches. There are good people in good churches and bad people in good churches. Just, you know, we get that idea. Um, and I just remember as a kid seeing people using what God has said to thump people, call them Bible thumpers, the, good, the bad kind, right? And literally, they would take some verse in the Bible and use it to control people. They'd use the Bible, God's word, to, to hurt people. They'd use it to control people, thump, right? They would use God's word to hurt people. And some of you are like, he's hitting his Bible in the pulpit. God's going to get angry with him. Um, <laughs> You know what makes God angry? When people take his words that were meant to help his children and hurt his children with it. That's what he gets mad about. Not me whacking a book. Right? And, and so we got people. And, and this is all of our tendency, by the way, is to take this truth we find in here and to use it against people. To use it for our agenda. It's clearly what they're doing. What's amazing to me about this whole situation, Jesus ignores their misquoting of Deuteronomy. He could have been like, actually, boys, you're misquoting that. Let me tell you what it actually says. Go get the guy, right? But he doesn't do that. He knows they have a secret agenda, but he doesn't point it out. He literally, here's what he does. Again, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Apparently, we have no clue what he'd do, because here's what he does next. Jesus bent down and starts writing with his finger on the ground. Of course, I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> He's writing, and, and everyone's wondering, what, what was, what's he writing? What's he writing on the ground? Well, nobody knows. I've heard sermons after sermon after sermon, people speculating about what, oh, he wrote the Ten Commandments in the dirt. So all the religious leaders would see the Ten Commandments, and they would know that they had broken one of those Ten Commandments, and pretty sure they knew the Ten Commandments, like, way better than us. And so I heard someone else say, well, actually, you know what he probably did, is he probably wrote the name of the guy that they had hired to, to trick this girl to, to set up this whole situation. And so by writing that one name, all of these religious leaders would know that Jesus knew what they were up to. And it was like, oh, I'm like, oh that's, that's, that's a nice hypothesis. I heard someone else say, well, you know, he wrote all the names of the women that these men had committed adultery with. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it's a little days of our lives. more, you know. And, and so people speculate, but we don't know what he wrote. But he's down there, and they're all just waiting, like, come on, give us an answer, give us an answer. What do you say? Here's this woman, something must be done. What do you say, what do you say? Verse 7, 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, no, these words are amazing. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And what Jesus does in this moment is a master stroke. Because they all come in a group. You know, people always congregate in groups. We find people like us and we group together and we attack the person that's not like us. Right? We, we, we gather with people like us and we attack the weak person. And you know that's true because you went to grade school. Right? And here they are. They're all gathered up and they're religious and they're gonna, they want this woman to die. They're trapping Jesus and all this stuff. And Jesus points to their own heart. Because the issue wasn't whether she was guilty. She was guilty. They caught her. The issue was, was there anyone there who was guiltless enough to throw the first stone? And at that question, every person, it says, beginning with the oldest, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest ones, they dropped their stones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So powerful. Each of them knew. They were not sinless. They were not guiltless. They could not throw the first stone in good conscience, and so they went away. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And then Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do what makes you happy. <laughs> Let's pray. That was good. That was good. No. <laughs> you, you already know intuitively Jesus didn't say that. I mean, Jesus wasn't like, just... I forgive you. Go do whatever makes you happy. I forgive you. Follow your heart. (laughs) Jesus never said that, right? Our culture says, hey, follow your heart. Do whatever makes you happy. It'll lead somewhere great. Jesus didn't say that. Here's what he said, and this statement is powerful. Notice what he says. Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This statement is, contains the gospel that, that God extends to us grace and forgiveness and calls us to live a different life because of it. He extends grace. I do not condemn you. Let me tell you something. There was nobody there in that crowd that day that could have thrown a stone at her except for Jesus. And he chose not to. He says, I, I do not, I choose not to condemn you. And again, we learned last week, Jesus wasn't saying, oh, we'll just sweep your sin under the carpet, pretend it never happened. No, Jesus actually says, I'll pay for that. I'll take your sin and the punishment for your crime to the cross and bear it on my own body. So he doesn't sweep it away. He pays for it. He says, I've forgiven you. He extends grace to the woman whose life is about to end. And then he turns to her and he says, go and sin no more. Live a different kind of life. Be free. Don't go back to the old way of living. Pursue something new because of what I have done for you. By the way, Jesus always embodied completely both grace and truth together. They always need to be together, by the way. And I would also say that grace needs to precede truth. It comes first. Grace comes first, then truth. Grace comes first, then truth. Some of you know people, you wouldn't be the person, but some of you know people who drop truth bombs, right? And they're the people that walk around, they're like, well, I just told them the way it was. I just told them like it is. Don't hate me, I'm just the mailman. The Bible says it, so I told them. I know it's true, and they need truth, because the truth will set them free. So I just, I just told them. I was like, you eat too much, you need to stop. Hey, you know, I, I just told her, you're a jerk, and you're mean to people. Nobody will tell you that, but I'm just telling you, nobody likes you, and, I, and you just need the truth, because the truth will set you free. 
Less grace precedes truth. That truth isn't helping anybody. You agree with me? Grace must precede truth. In fact, truth without grace kills. Paul spends a lot of time in his letters talking about how the law was given at Sinai. God gave all these rules for people. But without the grace and forgiveness that comes with Christ, it killed and it destroyed and it led everyone to death. If you go back to the laws of Moses and you read them, and you're to keep them like it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If we kept the law and all of its punishments perfectly, most of us would have no teeth and we'd be blind with eye patches. Half of us would be dead. Because the law, the truth, without grace, it just kills everybody. It's brutal. And if your home is like that, like if, if it's so law-driven and everyone's just punishments, 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 and there's no love and grace and truth, yikes. Kids, kids will run away from that faster than... Anyway, truth without grace kills. I think Theodore Roosevelt uh, said this, nobody cares how much you know. That's truth, by the way. Until they know how much you care. He's got it. Grace comes first. When someone knows how much you love them, that you really care for them, then when truth comes, they can receive it. So grace precedes truth. I honestly believe that if anything radical changed in this woman's life following her meeting of Jesus, it would be because he forgave her. It would be because he did not condemn her. It would be because she experienced love for the first time that was unconditional. That she received the grace of God in that moment. And then she was empowered to live a new way of life. I believe that Jesus would say the very same thing to us today that he says to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The problem is, first of all, like what is sin? What is truth? We live in a culture today that, is, that rejects absolute truth. I mean, I know many of you might say, well, no, I believe in God, I believe in truth, but our culture at large is basically saying there's no God, which means there are no laws that govern us, there's no morals, and so then what do we do? We're each our own God. We each got to make up, we kind of have to decide what, what rules apply to us, what compass we'll live by. And so therefore, we you know, ultimately end up making our decisions based on what makes us happy, which makes total sense. And the problem with this, especially if you grew up in church like I did, and I know some of you did that, then you might have grown up believing that happiness and holiness are incompatible. That doing what's right and living the way God would have you live means your life will be miserable. And the logic makes total sense to me, right? Because sin is fun. You know that, right? No, it's not. We're in church. We can't even admit that. Sin is fun. If you don't think sin is fun, you weren't doing it right, okay? (laughs) Like lying, stealing, cheating, doing all the things you're not supposed to do. It's fun in the moment. That's why people do it. They don't do it because it's It's not fun. They do it because it's fun. And so the logic is sound. Like if sin is fun, then no sin equals no fun. That's perfectly logical to me. And unfortunately, sometimes church and Christian families affirm this idea, this false notion, right? Because like we see people who aren't in church, and there's a little image coming up here, uh, and they look like they're having a blast. I mean, they have confetti, they have beautiful people, and they're just having a great time sinning. (laughs) They're not actually sinning, but you know what I mean, like... I mean, I grew, up, I, grew up in, I grew up in a Christian home, and when I was 16, 17 years old, I thought to myself, I literally believed this, I thought, I know I should follow Jesus, I know I should live right, but I want to have a little fun first. Like, when I'm old and boring, I'll really surrender my life to Jesus. But for right now, for right now, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of just 
kind of keep, sit on the fence a little bit. And just, because honestly, I believe, you know. And then I went to church and it affirmed it, right? Because it looked like this. <laughs> Some of you have been to that church. There is no fun in that church. And, and honestly, like I would literally, as a kid, we went to some great life-filled churches and some that weren't. And I remember going and seeing people sitting, and they were in their suits, which is great to dress up. Uh, but they were they're sitting there miserable, like, like putting in their time. And I thought to myself, this is the house of God. Like, if my kids came into our home and they were all sitting there, like they couldn't do anything fun or enjoy being with one another, it was just like all rules I'd be like, we're going to shake this up. Like, this isn't what I want as a dad. How much more? Our Heavenly Father, like, people lifeless. And then we walk into that. We're like, well, clearly following Jesus is terrible. So we're not going to do that. Jesus was often criticized for the places he went and the people he hung out with. And it didn't mean he wasn't holy. He was holy everywhere he went. And he never did wrong. But he wasn't boring. All right? We need to change that narrative a little bit. Would you agree? Yeah. So, people wrongly assume that go and sin no more means that's God's master plan for you not being happy, <laughs> right? That's, that's the master plan. Jesus said this in, in Matthew 7, verse 11, during his Sermon on the Mount. He says this, if you then, you and I, who are evil, thanks, Jesus, thanks for pointing that out, like you who can be selfish, you who mess up relationally, mess up with your family, friends, we do. If you know how to give good gifts to your children. He's pointing to this sense of altruism that every parent, even if you're not a parent, you can understand that there's this desire to do what's best for your kid at all times, as long as they're alive. You want what's best. And he's like, if you being evil feel that way about your kids, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you want what's best for your kids, you have no idea how much God wants what is best for you. And look, as a parent, your goal is not your kid's happiness. Like if, you're, if your end goal is that your kid is happy right now, you need to take a parenting class because that is not the end goal. You want what's best for your kids. Your eight-year-old will want to drink a two-liter bottle of pop before bed, stay up half the night, skip school the next day, pee on the floor. Like that, that's what they'll do because that, that'll make them happy. But you know as a parent, that is not what they need. And so you want what's best for them, not what makes them happy. And God is no different. He, he knows what will ultimately lead to our joy. He knows the path we need to walk on for our health and the health of the people we love, and he leads us in that way. So quickly, I want to share with you three reasons why this idea that is so culturally relevant today of do what makes you happy can be absolutely misleading. Here's the first thing. And by the way, happiness isn't bad. I'm not saying we need to be miserable. Happiness is a moving target. I don't know if you recognize this. Maybe in your life you've experienced what I've experienced. You thought, if I just get that thing, if I can just be in that relationship, if I can achieve that, get that job, get the raise, get the boat, that if I finally get that thing, I will be happy. I'm not the only one who's been there. And if I finally get it, I'll be happy. And then you discover that happiness is a moving target because when you get there, you're like, that's it? And you're looking around going, what's next? What's the next thing that'll make me happy? Because happiness is a moving target. And sometimes we're pursuing the wrong thing. My wife, uh, Jessica, she sent me an article this week that she stumbled onto online. Um, it's called, Women Are Healthier and Happier Without a Spouse or Kids, Expert Says. And they live longer. <laughs> to which I'm like, no, that can't be right. So what do I do? Three hours of fact-checking. 
And I'm, I'm pouring through the U.S. Census data trying to figure out where they're, like, how are they defining happiness and who are the people they surveyed and what's the pool. And I'm going through all this data. And, and then I actually go and I watch a, an entire lecture by the author of the book that, the author, that this person's citing. I did all the work for you. Let me tell you what. <laughs> let me tell you what the idea of the author of this book, what he's talking about is how young girls in our culture have believed a narrative. A story. And this is the story they have believed. They have believed that the pathway to happiness is finding a man and getting married. And then the pathway to happiness beyond that is having children. And if they do that, they'll be happy. And they're, they're finding out many years into this pathway that happiness isn't found there. Now, that should come as no surprise to us, right? Like, if you're standing on an altar marrying somebody and you're like, hey, we're going to be stuck together for 50 years, you're going to make me happy. <laughs> it's pretty humorous, really, when you think of it that way. And yet, no shortage of people in this room got married for exactly that reason. We just wouldn't say it that way. But it's like, I'm really banking on the fact that you're going to make me happy. Three, four, five years in, it's like, well, that didn't work out. Maybe kids are the answer. Because <laughs> kids... <laughs> That's right. Because... Because, of course, kids will make me happy. Now, I'm for marriage. Hear me. I'm a pastor. I'm for marriage. Coming up on my 20th anniversary this fall, like I'm for marriage. I'm for kids. If you want to be married and have kids, it's a wonderful gift from God, of course. But kids don't make you happy. <laughs> Maybe one out of seven days. You, you, you know, kids are wonderful, but it's, it's, it's the lie. It's the lie that slips in that that person will make me happy, and it doesn't work. It's a moving target. That kid will make me happy. And it's a lie. And it doesn't work. And so, you know, we talk a lot about marriage, but I very seldom talk about singleness. The Bible actually says quite a bit to say about people who choose to be, or maybe who just never got married, and they stay single. That their happiness isn't wrapped up in a wedding ceremony. It's found in God. And they can have a purpose and do, man, people who are single can do so much. I was thinking this week, I was thinking like, hey, I'm thinking of people who never got married, who impacted the world, and I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> there's somebody, never married, changed everything. And then I was thinking, I'm like, who else? Paul. All the letters he wrote that have changed the course of history, it blows my mind. Peter wrote a few little tiny letters, but he couldn't write what Paul wrote because he was busy building a deck for his mother-in-law. You know, he was married. <laughs> You get the idea. So we just have to, we just have to, we have to get rid of these ideas that like happiness is found in him or her or happiness is found in achieving that or having, it's just not where it's found. It's a moving target, okay? Here's the second thing. Happiness today may lead to misery tomorrow. Let me explain this. It's not hard. You go out and you get some drugs and you get high. You're going to have the best night of your life tonight. And then tomorrow when they wear off, what happens? It's worse. <laughs> You can go out today, take every cent of money, and buy the convertible you've always wanted, and next week, the mortgage comes due, and you lose your house. And you're like, but I wanted to be happy. I was following my heart. And happiness today, in this moment, often leads to misery. Lying is a fantastic way to avoid misery today and to be happy. You just lie your way out of everything, but guess what happens? When the lie's exposed, it's twice as bad. And so happiness today can often lead to misery tomorrow. And on the flip side, I don't want to say misery today can lead to happiness tomorrow, but 
Jordan Peterson uh, is a Canadian author. He's a teacher at U of T, I believe. And he's traveling around with his book. And one of the things I heard him talk about on numerous occasions is this idea of the biblical notion of sacrifice. Got a little image here of, of somebody sacrificing an animal. So if you had a picture Bible, you'd see something like this. And here are these ancient people recorded in the Bible who take a sheep or a goat or an animal. And by the way, we like, why would they be killing little cute animals? Those animals represented their wealth. Like we have bank accounts. They had animals and flocks. And they would take the best animal they had or multiple animals and they would kill the animal and they would burn it on an altar to God. And you're like, what a waste. That's just so silly. This so archaic idea of sacrifice. And Jordan Peterson says, no, this idea of sacrifice is, is what our entire culture is built upon. Every day when you get up at six in the morning, when you don't feel like it, and you go out to work because you're supposed to be there and your family's depending on you, you are sacrificing your happiness today for something better tomorrow. Sacrifice. People's retirements are funded by sacrifice. I'm not buying that now because I want to have something then. Right? So this idea of I got to be happy today is actually detrimental to your future. You have to ask the question, do I want to be happy today or satisfied tomorrow? And that's the question that we know mature people ask as they go through life. So happiness is a moving target. It may lead to misery tomorrow if it's only in the moment. And here's the third and final thing I want to say about happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Even if you do manage to obtain it and get it, you can't hang on to it. It's like fog. It's like, ooh, there's fog, and then it's gone. And you're like, what happened to the fog? Happiness is like that. I would say this. Happiness happens in the course of a life well lived. If you're living right and you're loving your neighbor and you're honoring God, you will have many happy moments and you should enjoy every one of them. Happiness will happen to you in the course of a life well lived. It is not the goal of a life well lived. It's not the goal. Happiness is fleeting. There's this, there's this cool story about a guy by the name of Moses. And Moses was uh, in the court of Pharaoh. He had wine. He had women. He had clothes. He probably had like a golden-covered Maserati chariot. Like he had everything. He was, he was, he was high up in, in Egypt's high rank, and when he realized that he was actually one of the children of Israel, that he was born of a slave woman, one of the people of God, here's what the writer of Hebrews says about the faith that Moses had. It says, he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Somewhere Moses realized it's better to be a child of God in a mud pit than to have everything this world has to offer but not be his. Happiness is fleeting, my friends. And I believe that contrary to what we often believe, holiness, living the way God would have us to live, is the pathway to lasting joy. Maybe not today, but it leads us in the pathway of lasting joy. Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist writes these words. He says, you make known to me the path of life. David, I believe it's David, he says, you show me how to live. When I live in the way that you have shown me. He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. When was the last time you thought about your heavenly Father, thought about God in heaven as being full of joy? When was the last time you pictured him laughing, singing over you? At your right hand are pleasures evermore. And, and I guess here's, here's what I wanted to challenge all of us with. If there is a God who loves us more than we could even love our own children, 
And if he wants, like we want for our children, the very best for us, why wouldn't we follow his path? Why wouldn't we go in the way he instructs us? Why would we choose to, 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 to forge our own way, to do it my way? And I want to close just by referencing this woman who was caught in adultery. We heard her story at the beginning of the message, and she came to Jesus, and he gives her grace, and he gives her truth, and she leaves, and her life is transformed because of the grace she receives. And we believe, we hope, that she lives it out. But she realized, I'm sure, in that moment as she stood before Jesus, that what she was pursuing, love, happiness, joy, pleasure, whatever it was that she was looking for in the arms of a man that was not her husband was never to be found there. And it would only be found in Christ. By the way, we quote, the truth will set you free. When Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he was talking about this idea, the truth that he is the only hope, the only way, the only love, the only way to God. That's the truth that sets us free. And so today, no matter where you're at, whether you're stuck in sin, whether you're just thinking that, you know, I'm just going to put off following Jesus because I have things I want to do. Like, if you could just realize that you can run to Jesus. Like, sin, the sins, you know, if you're stuck in sin, sin is literally a symptom of something that's wrong inside. Like, people sin. It's a way of, of medicating what's missing and broken inside. That's why we do what we do so we run to Jesus and we fall on our knees at his feet as we sang earlier and you know what he's going to say he's going to say neither do I condemn you you're free forgiven go and sin no more you want to know the path out of sin that's it instead of hiding from God like they did in the garden you run to the Savior the only way the only truth the only life can we pray together Father thank you for this uh for this message, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And Lord, we often think about her in a negative light, and yet, Lord, we are her. We are the ones who have fallen. We are the ones who are broken and sinful. And God, to hear those words you speak over us, forgiven, free, the price has been paid. It changes something inside of us when we recognize that our Heavenly Father loves us and wants what's best for us. So God, help us in this room to have faith, to trust that you know what's best and you have our best in mind so that we would willingly obey and follow. Thank you for what you've done for us. Help us to live in a way that demonstrates what you have done for us as we love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.